Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Last week, I hosted my first Twitter space with three well-known correspondents on a topic that is front and center these days, namely war and its consequences. Like me, two of these journalists reported on the Russian invasion of Ukraine when it first started back in 2014. All three also covered the start of Vladimir Putin's full-on invasion last month. Another point we have in common is that we are all women. But how does having women covering war and conflict affect what audiences get to read, hear, or see? What follows are excerpts of my conversation with NPR's Eleanor Beardsley and Joanna Kakissis, as well as Katarina Molofieva, a Ukrainian journalist currently with Al Jazeera English on the front lines in the East. You might hear some interruptions because this was a live conversation on Twitter. Like the internet here in the uh, hotel disappeared. Okay. So I, I, I went on data. <laughs> okay, great. So um, let's start with Katya, since you're actually in Kharkiv tonight. What have you been seeing there and elsewhere in eastern Ukraine uh, today and in recent days? And what are the challenges you're facing to be able to tell the story? When the war started, I was in Mariupol. But uh, two or three days later, we decided to withdraw from the area because it was already quite dangerous there. So we moved towards uh, Zaporizhia and Dnipro. So I was uh, based in Dnipro, but traveled around. So I visited Kharkiv, I also visited Zaporizhia. But we decided to come to uh, Kharkiv since it's more or less stabilized right now. I mean, of course, there is still shelling and I can hear it right now. And I'm super terrified, to be honest, because in Dnipro you couldn't hear it. And I'm I'm like um, trying to find out how far the shelling is right now. But I have um, an open window. And let's be honest, I'm thinking about pulling my mattress uh, either to the uh, bathroom or on the floor in the hotel room, honestly, because it's quite scary. Uh, we visited today the outskirts of Kharkiv, which is located really on the front line. So basically the Russians, they were two kilometers away. Ukrainian positions were two kilometers away. I heard like uh, shells flying over us. Luckily, we uh, we didn't get under the shelling, but we drove uh, to that area right 10 minutes after. And uh, I saw um, some houses burning some other houses on the distance, uh, some residential areas with um, multiple story blocks. Uh, there was a smoke. And uh, obviously, I saw people, of course, uh, who were queuing. Uh, most of them were elderly people. They were queuing for the, to get humanitarian aid in the school that was hit by shelling a couple of days before. How many people are actually left in Kharkiv at this point? I mean, do you get the sense that most of the population or half of the population has left? The authorities are saying that approximately one-third of the city have left. Kharkiv is the second largest city in Ukraine. Uh, normally, it's um, so there are 1.5 million people live in Kharkiv, so one-third uh, of the population have left. I can't verify this, of course, but uh, I can definitely see the empty streets. And from 6 p.m., there is a curfew here. Obviously, it's very difficult to find food. Uh, there are no restaurants, no cafes to eat. I'm saying about this not because, um, of course, it's understandable for war zones, but for people like us who are journalists, it's also important to have um, some basic needs covered. I'm talking about the place where we can sleep and the place where we can eat, right? Because you can't report uh, without covering these uh, basic needs. And it's very difficult when you can only have a breakfast and then 
you're not sure about you will eat tonight uh, or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can imagine that that's, I mean, I know (laughs) from experience as well that that's just really, really a terrible situation to be in. And it's constantly on your mind, you know, the safety aspect. Are you planning to stay in Kharkiv or is the plan to move again? I mean, what are the challenges that you're facing right now to be able to actually tell the story? Uh, The plan was to stay for a couple of days uh, up to a week time. But of course, we need to assess the situation, as I'm saying that um, the shelling is quite loud. And uh, if you can be under, you know, uh, risk uh, of being targeted, of being shelled, then uh, there is no point of staying in this location, right? But so basically, uh, before our conversation, I was looking at the map, uh, exploring the um, potential target areas. Basically, I'm located in between uh, two metro stations. Uh, one of the stations were hit I don't know, maybe 10 days ago, a little bit earlier. So, you know, what important is also about knowing the area. Uh, and I'm not local in Kharkiv. I've been to Kharkiv in early February as well. Um, so it's still for me yet to figure out uh, where the risks, how far the Ukrainian troops, how far there are Russian troops to understand what uh, weaponry they use, uh, how long it can uh, shell or shoot. So this is the main challenge is uh, the safety, uh, but also um, people are obviously very nervous. Uh, people are very, um, you know, scared as well. Quite often now working in Ukraine, uh, you can be stopped not only by the, let's say, police uh, or National Guard to check your documents, but for example, even obvious question on the street uh, to some civilians asking, like, can you tell us how to get to this location? Uh, people will be very uh, suspicious and they can ask you to show your documents because everyone is worried about saboteurs, about the subversive groups operating. So uh, people are very cautious and uh, nervous as well uh, in the um, uh, unknown environment. Let me bring Joanna into the conversation. She's been patiently waiting. Um, you've been doing stories, uh, Joanna, in, we- if I'm not mistaken, in Western Ukraine. I mean, describe sort of what, you, right. what you've been doing. Sure. So I was there just before the war broke out. So at the time um, that I was in Ukraine, everything was just, running smoothly and was beautiful. And I was in Kiev and, you know, it's this vibrant, artistic, counterculture, uh, gorgeous city, you know, full of people on the streets. Everybody uh, was talking about the possibility of the Russian invasion. But, you know, most of the people I spoke to and, and from the way life was going on, it didn't, you know, it didn't feel real to anybody. And then, yeah, I was in Western Ukraine. I was supposed to go to Mariupol and my trip was canceled. And I was very upset about that, partly because I had invested so much work into setting up a trip there, but also because I knew a lot about it from the perspective of living in Greece, because it's got a really strong Greek connection. So instead, I went to Lviv. And at the time, Lviv seemed as far away as possible from any sort of conflict. You know, like nobody there could even imagine refugees coming in. Um, And I remember talking to the mayor and the mayor's like, that's just not going to happen. You know, we're not going to have this flood of refugees coming in from the east because there's not going to be a war. And I don't think even he realized what was going to happen. 
Lviv, especially then, felt so far away from any sort of conflict. And, you know, how quickly everything changed in a matter of weeks was shocking to me as somebody who's not, this is my, this was my first visit to Ukraine, but very shocking for the people that I met. And I tried to stay in touch with everybody uh, as, or as many people as, as possible that I interviewed. And I have been talking to them over the course of these last few weeks, and it's just been heartbreaking. In my case, I'm talking to them on the phone to hear how their lives have been changing day by day by day. So I came home for a little while to Athens after Ukraine, and then I was going to Poland to cover a bunch of people coming in from Ukraine, fleeing refugees, you know. And I remember as I was driving down there, I just burst into tears because all I could think about was everybody I just met, you know, like just a few weeks before and how I was having coffee at this great cafe or these meeting these elderly power walkers in a park in Kiev and they asked me to join their club, you know. I mean, like I, all these people that I met just sort of came, came flooding right back to me. And it's just, it was very shocking to see how Ukraine could go from that to this horrible dystopian situation, thanks to this unprovoked and, you know, unbelievably aggressive Russian invasion. Well, you've actually covered refugees for a very long time, refugees coming mm-hmm. from other wars, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. How is what you're seeing and hearing from Ukrainians that you're talking to differ from those uh, from the people who've been coming from the Middle East or from Afghanistan? Well, I, I think that the feelings are, are the same. I mean, the feelings of displacement and, you know, lives appended and sort of feeling like you've just been thrown up in the air and you don't know how where you're going to land. Those feelings have been the same among everybody I've interviewed from, you know, the Syrians It felt very immediate because a lot of people had been living, you know, like in a nice apartment the day before and then it was bombed and they're like suddenly they're on the road and then they're, they're in the, they're on a raft and they're like crossing the sea, you know, they're, and, they're, and they're refugees and they're sitting in a refugee camp. The Afghans had taken much longer on that journey. And so their stories were filled with a lot of weariness. But still, that feeling of like everything just seems so mixed up and upended and I don't know where I'm going to land, that feeling lost of not having a compass because they don't, you know, their home is no longer their home. Their home is gone or under siege. Those feelings are the same. What I, what I noticed, and I think this has been very well documented, is so this is not going to come to us as a surprise, is the reception that Ukrainians received in Europe compared to the reception that the Syrians and the Afghans and Iraqis and, you know, and, and Africans. And yeah, in, in very different reception. Okay, the Syrians, initially in the first few weeks of 2015, they were very welcomed as well. And there were banners and there were flowers and there were, you know, Greek grandmothers giving them cheese pies on the when they arrived on rafts, but the mood changed very quickly to one of xenophobia and discrimination. So uh, what's been interesting for me and heartbreaking really is, you know, the European Union has always said we, we can't take in any more refugees. Well, this shows that they can. They have plenty of room and they have plenty of goodwill to give space to Ukrainian refugees. You know, I was talking to a scholar who's been studying state responses to refugee crises, um, and she said, I'm not going to judge the horrible things that the Ukrainians are going through. They are refugees. They need to be helped. And I'm very heartened to see the response that Europe is giving them. But it would be nice. It would be nice if other people were treated the same way. So, um, so I, I, and I agree with her. 
Stefano, are you um, able to let in some people for like we can take a question or two and then move on to the next questions that we have? Yes, it looks like we have one question. I will add a speaker right now. It's Asopius. Great. Go ahead with your question. Thanks. Thanks. And thanks to all of the uh, speakers. Just amazing courage and uh, intellect. And it's so much appreciated. I have a twofold question. My first part of the question is, do, do you find that your journalistic objectivity is starting to become degraded by nature? The fact that you're now a target of Putin being in the line of fire. Um, that's part A. And part B is, do we think that potentially the Europe's uh, change in heart towards the refugees from the Ukraine has to do with their whiteness or non-Muslimness. Thank you. Great questions. Thank you. Let's have Katya answer the first Eleanor, one. Can you guys hear me? I just want to. Yeah, we can hear you, Eleanor. We can hear you. Can you hear us? I heard the question, but now I don't hear anything. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, we're we're going to get this, I'm sure. But let's have Katya answer. Uh, the first question, did you do you remember the first part of the question, um, which was whether you feel like you're a target of Putin? I mean, is there is there ability to be objective uh, in, in coverage or is it at this point that you're a target? Well, you know, I have a quite a history because I started reporting this war from 2014 when it started in my own city of Donetsk. It is now under control of the Russian-backed separatists. So basically it's a area... Uh, according to the Ukrainian authorities, it is called the temporarily occupied territory. But people who are um, uh, leading there, they call it a breakaway Donetsk People's Republic. So from the beginning of the war, I started, I was working for the BBC, Al Jazeera, uh, and uh, some other big names. So they taught me how to do the objective reporting, basically to uh, show different sides of the conflict. And obviously, um, of course, about the civilians who are targets in the war because the civilians are those who are trapped between the fire. So um, I don't think that something changed in the course of eight years for me, honestly, because working uh, and covering both sides of the conflict is always like walking on the razor. It happened to me later on when I was reporting in Karabakh uh, because I was covering this war from both sides of the conflict from Armenian and Azerbaijani uh, sides as well. So it is difficult. It is extremely difficult, but it's possible. And as long as you uh, keep, um, you know, objective line, it's possible to do reporting. But as a civilian, uh, of course, the air raid sirens and shelling affects uh, the mood, affects your energy level, of course, affects the amount of effort and uh, time you can invest in the reporting. I'm talking both uh, writing, producing or doing lives for different media outlets or radio talks. But overall, um, in my case, I don't think it's, it, it affected. Joanna, is there an issue of race and religion when it comes to who's accepted and who's not in the EU? I mean, are you seeing that? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, I am. And it's been so obvious. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, it's understandable in that, you know, for example, Poles know Ukrainians. They're right next door to Ukrainians. You know, I Poles can somewhat understand Ukrainian people when they speak Ukrainian and vice versa. They share food. They share history. They share culture. So to some extent, that is understandable because it's like your next door neighbor or your brother or your cousin, whatever you want to metaphor you want to use. But it is glaring that 
you know, Poland was one of the countries in the EU that refused to take any resettled refugees who had been cleared as a refugees. They, they'd been, you know, vetted, whatever, you know, the, the word that was used all the time by Hungary and Poland that we don't want these, you know, people coming in who, who haven't been so-called vetted. And these were vetted refugees. They'd gone through the asylum procedure. They were refugees, recognized refugees, and Poland wouldn't take them because they were not white and they were not Christian. Um, so there's no denying that the welcome that the Ukrainians received, that ra- that discrimination like race and religion did play a role there. And I think it played a role throughout the EU. So I think Eleanor can hear me now, but if she... If, I, I can. Oh, yes, finally. I'm, I, I love technology. Yeah. You know, it's... it's yeah. <laughs> this is actually a big problem that we always face as yeah. war correspondents when you're in the field. You're like doing, you know, backflips trying to make the technology work. So this is sort of gives that flavor, I think, to the audience. So they, <laughs> yeah. they can... But let me ask you uh, about Kharkiv because obviously you were there back in 2014 and then you were also there and, you know, before, or I should say when... Uh, the Russians started to come across the border for right. this terrible war. What do you see different, like from in 2014 when it was more of a, I mean, I hate to call it a cat and mouse game, but at the beginning, you know, the Russian, the little green men, as they were called, you know, in Crimea, I mean, you would see them, you knew they were there, the Russians kept denying it, but it wasn't certainly the intensity that we're seeing now. Oh, right? it, it wasn't, it wasn't serious. It was like a joke. Uh, okay. I went to the Donbass. I went to the separatist areas. I was in Donetsk before it became separatist. It seemed like just a really, it was a nice town. I flew into a very modern airport from the Euro Cup of 2012. It's completely destroyed now. It's just so bizarre. And um, no, and I watched these town halls get taken over. And many times, yes, there were armed men with their faces covered by the clavas, but sometimes they'd just be drunk like 17-year-olds. I'm not kidding. And they just put tires and, sticks and everything up in front of the town hall sandbags and take it over i mean it didn't seem serious it didn't seem like it would last they had their boom boxes out there playing music you could smell alcohol and you know some places were more official seeming than others but we were kind of watching towns go which town will be next will they take over next because we were told everybody there said you know what happened in kiev with maidan which was seen as like this moment of dignity you know no, those were the fascists, and they're coming for us next. And why do you support the fascists? It wasn't, people weren't scared. They were just kind of like, yeah, almost laughing. One person said, oh, did you bring NATO? You know, but they really thought that those were the fascists. And I just thought, wow, they don't see it the same way at all. So that's kind of how it was. And I just thought, well, they'll realize the truth, you know, oh, God, how wrong I was, you know. And I remember I was with my fixer who was from Luhansk and he was kind of starting to freak out. He said, they're cutting all the Ukrainian channels. They're playing Russian channels. It's total propaganda. They're saying things that aren't even true. So anyway, that was going on. At the time, I didn't go to Kharkiv in 2014, but everyone was wondering. Kharkiv was a big, it was the second biggest city. It was in the east. It had a, you know, sort of pro-Russian. People spoke solidly Russian there. And, you know, I actually didn't go. But people wondered, is Kharkiv going to be next? So I actually went back to Ukraine in January. And I finally went to Kharkiv. And I really braced myself for a place that would was going to be pro-Russian. And I was like, wow, I wonder what the reasons are, what's going on. It was completely Ukrainian. On the train station, they had a big flag and a huge thing thank you to our troops. 
people were so pro-Ukrainian and they told me, I mean, I sat down in cafes. It was actually, a, I thought it was going to be very Soviet and factories. And it was, I, it was beautiful. There were churches and there was Christmas time and there were lit up streets. And, and I sat down in cafes and people told me, they said, we know there were Russians because we heard their accents. They came for one day and they tried to turn this place and they handed out leaflets like it was 1917 and they called it the Russian Spring. And the mayor threw them out. They hoisted the Russian flag over the town hall. That's that beautiful town hall that's now been destroyed. And the woman said, and we we threw them out and everyone has been glad since. And she said, and we've seen what's happened in the separatist areas right near us. because The Donbass is right next door. And they had plenty of internally displaced people who fled to Kharkiv from there. She said, we've seen it. We've seen the, the propaganda. We've seen the horrible lives they have. It's dystopian and nobody wants anything to do with it. And, you know, this woman, she was a professor at the university there. She said, people are speaking Ukrainian now. They're switching from Russian more and more. They were still speaking Russian. Everybody speaks Russian in Ukraine. It was another one of Putin's like insane, you know, if you're far away, you might believe it, but it would be like, we're going to have genocide against French speakers in France. I mean, it was like ridiculous, you know, and also there were tons of foreign students there. So in January, I remember asking, you know, are you scared of Putin invading? They were like, oh, no, they would just laugh. And the Ukrainians would, too. And I just thought to myself, what a strange place this is. It's open to the world. We've got people from all over the world studying here, really excited about it. And you've got this guy, Putin, this old dictator from the last century with his troops on the border. It just seemed like a total, you know, dichotomy between those two extremes. It was just such a weird feeling. And no, I never believed this invasion was going to happen. I never understood why the Biden administration was doing that. I kept saying, why are they doing this? And no, yeah, I swear to you, nobody in Ukraine did either. I mean, probably somebody did, but People did not. And I was actually in Kharkiv and um, Katya seen very scary stuff. And I salute her braveness. You know, I was there the morning it happened. And I don't think I believed it up until that morning. I got a call from my husband in Paris and said, CNN says that the Russians are going to invade Kharkiv tonight. Where are you? And I said, Kharkiv. (laughs) And I was (laughs) I was in my bed and I was like, damn. So I put all my clothes on and I laid in bed and I was just straining my ears. I, I looked outside. There's a woman walking her dog at 4.30 a.m. And then around 5 a.m., the thing started coming up. And I got on, a well, I called the security guy next door and we said, okay, let's just wait. And I saw that NPR in Washington was like on this big chat talking, talking back and forth. And then somebody said, he's just announced it. And then it came over my phone, like Le Figaro and BBC. I was like, oh, damn it. And then boom, boom. And then I heard it and I saw like the skyline light up. And that was the first moment that I really thought, oh, wow, he really is going to do this because it came right after that announcement. And it was a scary feeling. Um, Our security guy said, we need to get down in the basement for the bombs. I was like, no, we need to get out of here. And it was just a weird, horrible feeling. But I mean, the thing was, I was just I couldn't believe how Putin he had such bad intelligence. Talk about the U.S. had great intelligence. I will never doubt it again. Well, Russia had terrible intelligence. Because Putin thought that he was going to be welcomed by Ukrainians. He thought that 30 to 50 percent might join their army, lay down their arms, at least be resigned. And if you had spent any time in Ukraine, even in the east, people were very, very Ukrainian. And those last eight years sort of like forged this nation, this real Ukrainian um, feeling and spirit that kind of wasn't there in 2014. 
We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear more of my Twitter space conversation on March 22nd with NPR's Eleanor Beardsley and Joanna Kakissis, as well as Ukrainian journalist Katarina Molofeeva. Stay tuned. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and in this episode, we are talking about women journalists covering wars. What follows are more excerpts of my March 22nd Twitter Space conversation with correspondents Eleanor Beardsley and Joanna Kakissis of NPR, and Ukrainian journalist Katarina Molofieva. Katya, do you think that there's any way to make sure, or how do you try to make, as a journalist, to make your stories balanced? Uh, to make sure that there is some Russian narrative in the story? Or does the Russian side deserve to be shunned in coverage as they are politically? Well, before the incursion, before the basically 24th of February, it was possible uh, because, I mean, I spent three and a half months so far on the front line. I've traveled uh, towards the Crimean border. And uh, in all of our stories, we always try to get the second voice. For example, the town of Avdiivka, right in front of Donetsk, uh, it is on the Ukrainian side. And we heard different voices, uh, both pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian. Similar was uh, along the Crimean border. Because, again, before the war, uh, people were unhappy with the state of things uh, because the economy was uh, very dependent on the movement of people. When there were trains from the mainland of Ukraine to Crimea, uh, people easily traveled. Let's say Crimea is not really um, abundant in terms of the plants and uh, you know fruits uh, b- because of its geographical and climate um, uh, and climate, right? Geography and climate. Uh, now people who live along the border with Crimea, they you know got, for example, cut off from the possibility to earn money or to travel to see their relatives. And uh, so in, in many, loca- oh, let's say we were reporting maybe one and a half week before the war from the uh, small village of Borisivka in Kharkiv region, which is on the border with Russia. Uh, sadly to say now that this village was eliminated because I cannot reach out to people I, I met, uh, you know, months ago. 
So has it been flattened? Uh, the, is that what you're saying? It's been it's been completely wiped off the map, or have the people left? That's my really huge concern because this is where the Russians came from. So when I met with those people, they were sad because of the um, uh, wall and fence established in 2018. I can't call it wall, but it was a fence. So the village was split into two. Let's say you have a cemetery on the Russian side where your beloved you know, relatives are buried uh, and you cannot visit the cemetery because of the fence. And similar to that, Russians were studying at school on the Ukrainian side and they were coming to Ukraine because uh, products were cheaper. This was before 2014 and before 2018 when the fence was established. And of course, when you spoke to people, they told me, Yes, we are Ukrainian citizens, we are Ukrainian passport holders, but we really miss this sense of community. We really miss our time when we were all together living like, you know, we speak the same language, etc., etc. So they didn't deny the fact that they are Ukrainian citizens and they um, they are pro-Ukrainian borders, but they wanted uh, to have this friendship of nations. They wanted, you know, something that was during, you know, Soviet times. And now, as I mentioned, that uh, I really don't know what happened to this uh, village because it's like 40 kilometers from Kharkiv. Uh, if uh, today I was at the point where Russians approached up to two kilometers, the small village or town, Tsirkuni, uh, around Kharkiv is now you know where Russians are based. So before 24th of February, we tried uh, all our best to to show both sides. We, uh, oh, sorry, not both sides, but at least uh, different views, right? Uh, to to keep the objective reporting, because not everyone was happy with the state of things. Not everyone was happy with Zelensky, uh, because uh, people connected the uh, bad economy and corruption with Zelensky. Because um, you know the the pensions were very meager, and people could not afford. Uh, to pay for the um, coal to heat their houses in the winter. This happened all along the contact line, front line in Eastern Ukraine. I'm talking about uh, the front line in Donbass from Stanitsa Luganska to Mariupol. Uh, but now, of course, uh, really things changed. You know, the for many Ukrainians, Zelensky turned out to be a hero, uh, not only probably for the Ukrainians, but also for the Western countries as well. So people really praise him. I still meet a lot of people who, um, you know, who were, you know, anti-Zelensky, anti-president, but now they kind of really change their attitude also within the army as well. Well, I think annihilating villages yeah. will do that. I mean, there's there's just been so much death and destruction. And I mean, Mariupol, it's, it's hard to even talk about it. But let me bring, I mean, because I promised that we were going to talk about how women are changing the coverage of war. And we obviously are women and we're talking about what it is we're covering. But I'm just wondering, let me ask Eleanor, um, do you find... I mean, what, what is it that you think you bring to the table? And Joanna can answer this, and Katya as well will take turns. What do you think that we bring to the table, or how do we change uh, the way combat coverage is looked at? What is it that we do differently, if anything? Mm-hmm. I think, um, I mean, okay, I'm a woman, but I'm also a middle-aged woman. <laughs> I feel like a middle-aged woman is the perfect reporter. Everyone wants to talk to you. And that's just one little thing, like men want to talk to you, women want to talk to you. That's the first thing that comes to mind is like women can get into a situation. Maybe women wouldn't talk to a man as they might talk to a woman. But somehow, I mean, I guess if I were younger, it might be different. But I feel like I have, I can just get in and talk to people anywhere where they might not talk with a man. 
and and yes, I mean it's and war is mostly men, and it's men conducting, and it's men, but that's changing. It's, it's now you have women fighting in in Ukraine, you have women fighting in the U.S. Army, you have women in all the armies now, and women reporting on it. So it's changing, and it's a different story because you're getting at different things. You're a different person than a man, so you're going to focus on maybe a little bit different aspects. It shows how it's affecting everyone. It shows how it's affecting. Of course, the mothers and the children and the people who aren't fighting as well, because maybe women, men report on that, too. I'm not saying you need to be a woman to report on that, but I think it gives a more balanced, a more whole view of a whole war situation. Yeah, I mean, for sure, I certainly don't want to say men don't cover the human aspects of this. But I know, for example, with Afghan coverage, it really was women who went into Afghanistan, and I, I'm glad to be one of those women, you know, who really brought attention to the humanness, as you say, you know, the families, the women, you know, when we talk about addiction, for example, uh, opium addiction, everyone was focused on men. And I chose to do a story about women and children becoming addicted uh, to opium. And, and so we're opening up that world, we're talking to people who perhaps didn't have a voice. Katya, how are people reacting, though, to you as a woman in Ukraine? I mean, there's a more conservative religious uh, culture there. And obviously, I mean, I certainly encountered a little bit, you know, sort of curiosity, I would say, at checkpoints and that sort of thing when I was traveling around the Donbass and, and Donetsk and other places. I mean, do you, as a Ukrainian, you know, speaking Ukrainian, speaking Russian, what sort of comments do you get that, you know, are people happy to see a woman reporting this? Or would they prefer men do this job? Or do they think men should do this job? Um, it's difficult to say about preferences of people uh, because I'm not the male producer. Just wanted to add to Eleanor. Uh, she mentioned that as a middle-aged woman, she meets people who are really happy to talk to to her. And I noticed it as well. For example, if eight years ago um, the, I was, uh, you know, in the limelight mostly of the uh, soldiers, yeah, because they saw. Uh, a young lady and they wanted like to share their military experience I'm, I'm talking about both sides of the conflict back then now i see that i open more and more people and i basically my experience probably showed that i can um you know tell the story and, and can reassure everyone uh men women uh babushkas you know elderly and kids and now the age basically affects it and, and it makes my um, interviews better because they can trust me. It, it really helps. So age makes sense. Uh, but um, I want to a little bit shift from your question. So in the past week, I had a big argument with a correspondent and we were discussing about reporting uh, in the dangerous environment, hostile environment. So. Um, the correspondent I'm currently working with, he wants to concentrate on the frontline stories. I mean, like really being embedded with the military, being embedded with the militia, being embedded on the checkpoint. And um, you know, there were a couple of examples of this reporting by some prominent media. And I looked at those pieces several times, I don't know, four or five times. And I just asked myself, what do I get from this boom, boom? Like, what as a viewer I can get from this, apart from seeing that you jeopardize the life of your, uh, uh, you know, cameramen, fixers and uh, military as well, because military have to do their job right now and not just to, you know, uh, entertain the journalists. So, I mean, there was a huge um, unsettled feeling inside me because 
there are so many stories to do right now uh, about, you know, refugees, IDPs, about injured people, about people in the uh, metro uh, hiding from the shells, about the animals uh, who are also suffering, hospitals uh, being targeted, schools. I mean, it's just a variety of topics that women can cover and report and show the depth of this suffering, the depth of the story, while males only concentrate on shelling because they think that the clickbait just can win them awards, can get them glory. I mean, do you really, as a human being, are you really interested in shelling to see boom, boom, to see shelling? You can get this from the social media, from people who post it, you know, on Twitter or Instagram, or basically from those people who experience this. It's now you can get this videos uh, on social networks, on Telegram, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, in order to show the story, compassion of people who are left behind, who, you know, disabled, whatever, uh, I think women understand it more and they can convey the message more. And me as a woman, now I, I started thinking more about what this, like, shelling stories, frontline stories can really, you know, do to the audience. So that's the difference between a female approach and male approach to me. I work with male colleagues and they are missing a lot because they concentrate, in my opinion, on a little bit different angles and sometimes wrong angles. Mm, I think you're right. Yeah. Joanna, what about you? I mean, you know, do you feel limited by your sex? Do you feel editors, male editors or male producers or whoever, you know, fixers even might be steering you to a certain kind of coverage because as a woman, they don't think you can handle the real war, as it were? I, I do have a problem with mansplainers. <laughs> and uh, I kind of live in a country full of them. So I, I'm used to managing mansplainers. Mediterranean men love to mansplain. You're in Greece, um, correct? Just so yeah, we can let Greece. the listeners I'm know. Cur- yeah, in Athens. Currently in Greece. Okay. Currently in Greece. Uh, Polish men also have a propensity to mansplain as well. So it's like, yeah, that's where I'm going tomorrow. But I mean, that's just a, just a, I'm just joking. I mean, partly. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but I think it's still a space that men, I think, think they dominate. And in some cases they do. You know, you see a lot of guys out there on the, you know, running around on the battlefield. I have not been on a front line like you have, Soraya, um, like, you know, like Katya has um, and like Eleanor has. But I do know what a ward does because having covered refugees for as many years as I have, um, I know the imprint that war leaves on people and that displacement leaves on people. You brought up Mariupol. I mean, Mariupol is something that, um, you know, has been covered a lot in terms of, of the war. But, you know, the imprint that that destruction is going to leave on the people who saw it or the people who remember it also needs to be covered. And it's going to be the story that I think in many ways is going to people are going to remember. They're going to remember the horrible carnage and the destruction of the city. But that feeling of losing something that was once so beautiful and vibrant and that was yours, um, that all that story also needs to be covered. And I and I'm not saying that women just do feeling stories better. I think that's a story about history. It's a story about war. It's just a story with more layers. And Mm -hmm. my experience has been that a lot of my colleagues who cover war, who are men, do like Katya mentioned, do want to be embedded with the troops and do all that. Like, I want to be there with the trenches. The trenches is only part of the story, though. 
and just not to be unfair to men, I mean, like, I know we're talking about our experiences as women, but lots of male journalists also have that sensitivity. Like, I think Yaroslav Trofimov has been doing a great job covering the story. He's also a Ukrainian uh, by birth, and I think he's very connected to it. Um, and I think it having a connection to a place that you're covering, um, I've seen it with, you know, journalists who have some, like, like you, you have some heritage in Afghanistan, you can speak the language you know, because you're part Iranian. Um, the, you know, I've seen uh, really wonderful coverage by Syrian American journalists or Lebanese American journalists, Lebanese Australian journalists, um, just people who have heritage in the Middle East who can speak the language and who can understand like Syria. Some of the best coverage was for, were by women correspondents who had who had heritage and had connection to that place. And I wanted to say a last thing. I mean, it was, you know, referencing uh, Katya specifically, Ukrainian women specifically. I mean, our uh, pop-up bureau in Ukraine, all of our local producers are women, and they are fantastic. They are tireless. They are full of knowledge, and we literally could not do one thing without them. They are the backbone to our coverage. They help us verify things. They give us sources. They translate yeah. You know, they talk us through every single story. So, um, and they're all women <laughs> and they're great. Well, uh, we're getting close to the uh, top of the hour. So we're going to end this. I want to sort of get some closing thoughts from each of you to talk about whether you think the coverage is going to change the course of this war. I mean, has it done that so far? Has it actually been more effective maybe than bombs or fighter planes or drones or whatever? I mean, in terms of getting people's attention, I mean, in the world, for example, the AP team that came out of Mariupol, it was their coverage of the bombing of the maternity hospital that actually, you know, had more impact. So I'm just wondering what each of you think, and we'll start with Eleanor. Well, I think the coverage has been just incredible, and the world has been absolutely just horrified and, I mean, mesmerized in a horrible way, glued to their televisions and waking up and going straight to their phones. And it's been incredible. Unfortunately, it's starting to be so overwhelming that maybe people are getting almost numbed by it. I'm starting to see other stories go on the television news. And I'm just like, my God, this war, is are we going to forget about it? So I'm really afraid of that. And I really wish this coverage could somehow pierce through to the Russian people. It's like they need to know what's going on here. And they're the ones who don't know what's going on here. So I think the coverage has been incredible. We must keep it up. And um, I hope the world will stay tuned. And I hope it will somehow pierce this propaganda shield in Russia. And I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. Katya, what about you? What do you think? Uh, is this coverage going to make or break this war? Difficult to say because I'm actually in the epicenter. I'm not an outsider. And of course, because I'm on the ground, I don't have time to look through the you know, uh, coverage of other um, teams, other crews. So I would like to mention that, like again, in every war, the freelancers are covered here without no knowledge of the background. They just come in because it's a top story right now. And after them, you know, I come to the hospitals and people tell me, oh, no, we don't want to speak to the journalists anymore. We don't want to show our injured people because they are tired, because people will not sensitive. They kind of uh, offended again, you know, because of these lack of uh, ethics from some of the uh, media, right? So this is first problem that because it's um, this area is 
um, has abundance of journalists that journalists, you know, stop thinking about ethical aspects. Uh, secondly, I've noticed uh, because um, in, in the past months, uh, quite often I was on the BBC radio, different BBC radio. So basically I had two or three interviews per day, sometimes five interviews per day. And I noticed that in the course of last week, um, I started receiving less requests from them. Um, so I understand that the you know accent is shifting towards some probably other stories, and it makes me sad because mm-hmm. Ukrainian war didn't disappear. It just really like so acute and so active and so um, terrifying that uh, I, I don't want the accent uh, to to shift because media helps to change the course because the the more we bring the uh, the story. For the international audience, we can get some help to finish this war, right? Because for Ukraine, Ukrainians' troops are standing, uh, but on the diplomatic level, things are not changing. Uh, these uh, meetings um, between Ukrainian and Russian delegations, they are still in the deadlock, right? They're still not resolving the conflict, the war. We actually have one, I think, a listener question, and I want to make sure they get their uh, question in before I let uh, Joanna close. Stefano, if you want to connect the listener, um, they can ask their question. Yeah, we have a question from uh, Rafia. If you're there, I'll add you as a speaker now. I cannot tell all of you how touched and inspired I am by the work you have done. I felt that something was missing in my understanding and this conversation like, um, oh my God, I'm so in awe of all of you and, you know, all my admiration to each and every one of you, especially Katya, who's right in the epicenter. And my question is simply... um, One of the issues that I've been looking at is human trafficking, uh, which tragically, of course, emerges after every conflict in the world. And so um, if any of you had any thoughts on that, I would be very, very grateful. And you can take me off, Mike. Thank you again. Rafi, I want to say, first of all, um, I'm a huge fan of yours. You're a wonderful writer. (laughs) So thank you for asking the question. I um, have heard from uh, refugee advocates uh, and activists on the Polish border that there have been some isolated, isolated, that's their word, a few incidents that recorded of people who have tried to grab children or misdirect women into apartments that are not really, you know, well, it's not that you're not going into the home of a nice Polish family, but you're going into a situation where they're trying to traffic you into um, sexual slavery, but they haven't recorded widespread incidents of it yet. But this is based on, you know, two or three conversations. This is not something I've dug into. It is something that I'm interested in looking at and figuring out if, you know, how widespread it is and if it's going to happen. I know that there was one case of a woman who was actually lured into a man's house in one of the big cities, I think it was in Warsaw, you know, with yeah. this idea that she was going to stay there, um, he was going to give her shelter, but he ended up, you know, sexually assaulting her. Uh, yes, of course, this is an issue. Uh, and I've heard sort of a few incidents about a few cases. I don't know how widespread it is just because I haven't done the reporting yet, but it's a, it's a good question. 
That was Joanna Kakissis, who you can hear on NPR. Also with me on March 22nd in our inaugural Twitter space was NPR's Eleanor Beardsley and Ukrainian journalist Katarina Malafieva. I'm Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson, and thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and our intern is Abigail Meginson. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 